0: Hi there. Welcome to Inside MERS Investments. I'm Kristen Bellar, MERS General Counsel. I manage all of MERS legal and compliance matters. I'm here today with Jeb Burns, the Chief Investment Officer, who leads MERS Investment Team in managing over $15 billion of assets for pension and other financial accounts. Good to chat with you again, Jeb, and welcome to our listeners. Our focus today is going to be on market volatility and the position MERS Investments are in as the global economy grapples with a lot of changes and uncertainty. Uh, That gives us a lot to cover. We've got some questions lined up that I'd like to dive right into. Uh, But first, let me just say, I was talking to a friend who works in the financial markets recently, and I asked him how things were going. Uh, He said, well, I'm sleeping like a baby these days. Yeah, I go to bed every night, sleep about two hours, and then wake up crying for about two hours.
1: Kristen, thank you uh, so much for that nice lead-in. I think that reflects quite well how we're all feeling. Market volatility is definitely back, and uh, I think your friend's right. It's these are these are difficult times to be managing a portfolio. But at the end of the day, that's that's why we're paid. That's why we have the the governance structure that we have in place because we know these things are going to happen. And um, and I really do think it, it's a time to look at your portfolio and assess what's working, what's not. And it really is an opportunity to add new things to the portfolio that uh, you know will meet our you know members' needs going forward.
0: Well, great. Well, let's then start with the MERS picture. Then, um, how about you walk us through MERS's investment performance so far through this second quarter of the year?
1: Yeah. So two things come to mind. Exciting. I think I think we'll go with that. It's definitely been exciting. And there's a phrase that we call relative returns, um, and that essentially means that the markets are down, but uh, in our case, we have very very strong positive relative returns uh, versus our benchmark. Um, and I'll just give you a couple numbers, which I think kind of put things in context. So the portfolio you know, through the second quarter, through the end of June, was down about 11.64%. That's net of fees, all our expenses, while the benchmark was down 17.55%. So that's essentially a 5.9 plus outperformance, percentage point, outperformance of the policy benchmark. Um, and that's really strong. And I think it's driven by a couple of things. I think I'll highlight... About 30% of the portfolio is in um, alternative investments. That would be private equity, it would be infrastructure, uh, that would be investing in toll roads, airports, those type of ports, um, real assets, which we call real estate and farmland. And uh, we also have diversified strategies. These are things which ideally do better in markets like this than traditional stocks and bonds. And that 30% is essentially positive. All parts of it are positive as opposed to when you look at stocks and bonds uh, globally the average you know fixed income index is down ten percent we're down less than that closer to six um, and traditional you know equity markets are down twenty percent so the portfolio is holding up well and I think the major reason for that is you know on the alternative sides we added these things in the portfolio knowing that a couple of things were going to happen we knew inflation was going to get higher We also knew that you do have, you know, shocks to the system. We know you're going to have recessions. We know you're going to have geopolitical events. Uh, So we put in these insurance policies, if you will, to kind of help us during uh, these time periods. And then, you know, we managed the portfolio. um, Again, the traditional part, the stocks and bonds, with an eye towards that there would be some kind of shock coming because valuations were so high. And frankly, interest rates have been you know, so low for so long. So we shorten the duration of our fixed income portfolio. Now, what that means is if you've got a 30 year bond, just give you a rough number. If it pays 4% today, but interest rates go up to say 6%, well that portfolio, you know, that bond's worth a lot less um, because you can buy a new one that gives you a higher rate of return. And we knew that this day was gonna come because rates were essentially negative and zero throughout the world. So we had made changes to the portfolio. We gotten rid of global bonds because they were returning, you know, a negative uh, real return. And then we just shortened the duration, meaning we bought bonds that matured, you know, ten years and under, in order to kind of mitigate some of those losses when interest rates go up. And then you know, on the equity side, we always tend to have a quality bias. That's that's a bias we've had, really, from in, in entirety. And I think those philosophical positions and some of the execution of the portfolio have really. Allowed us to provide some value during a very very difficult market environment.
0: You mentioned the bench, the policy yeah. benchmark. Can you tell our listeners what our but what that means? Um, it seems like we're beating it by about six percent. So that's yeah. a good thing. But how, what does that mean? And how and how do we measure ourselves in that regard?
1: So, all institutional investors, uh, and frankly all investors, should have a policy benchmark. And what that is is it's a passive asset allocation. So imagine that you were going to put together a portfolio of just the cheapest passive exposures you could get to the marketplace without any active management at all. And it needs to be uh, something which is reasonable. So it could actually be a viable alternative um, for the board. And the way we develop that is we hire an outside consultant. So we like to have kind of an arm's length review of this. And they recommend something which is reasonable, um, difficult, Um, but should help us meet or get as close to our actual rate of assumption as possible to meet our goals my job and the job of my team is to outperform that so it's a way to measure if we're adding value um, and it's also a way to measure if we're not adding value you know the good news is we are it really essentially every time period um, and this year in particular we've done very well the benchmark itself is it's a broad asset allocation that should work over most markets it's uh, 65% stocks and 35% bonds, and it's global in nature. Um, and just, if you want a little bit, would you like a little more detail? Sure. Sure. Um, so 45% is in is in the Russell 3000, which that gives us broad U.S. exposure. So that's 3,000 U.S. stocks of large size to very small size. 20% is the MSCI ACQUI-X-US-IMI. That's a mouthful. A lot of letters. That's our global... Um, stock exposure, so that would be Europe, Japan, um, you know, every, you know, Australia, every place outside the U.S. Um, then we have 25% in the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index. That's our U.S. exposure, and then the benchmark also has 10% in the Bloomberg Global Aggregate.
0: But no private equity, I I know.
1: No, no private yeah. equity.
0: And so I wanted to follow up on that. You mentioned earlier that our private equity investments are performing really well. Um, I think it might, our listeners might be curious to know why then we just don't shift all of our assets to those areas where we're seeing strong returns.
1: Well, we're governed by a, a statute, you know, in addition to all the regulatory um, constraints called Persia. And what it does is it, it limits the amount that we can invest in alternative investments. We're one of the largest... You know, public plans in the state. So therefore we have a lot of latitude and we, can, we can't really go above 30% in you know, alternatives. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. And, and I imagine with, uh, as with everything, the higher uh, reward that you might get from private equity means the higher risk and that's, that's why um, the state and the legislature has an interest in, in controlling and governing that we don't put all of our assets into the private
1: equity. Exactly. And, and, and when you talk about risk, I think one of the things, you can invest in private assets which frankly might have a similar risk to very conservative investments, but you have a lot, oftentimes liquidity risks. so uh, the money comes back over a longer period of time. Uh, you know I can't sell those tomorrow as opposed to traditional stocks and bonds which I can you know I can sell tomorrow in the marketplace and we can get the money. and I think you know I'm comfortable with you know our our, our current allocation given the maturity of the plan and, and our liquidity needs.
0: Yeah, can you give us an example of one of the private equity investments MERS has that's doing particularly well?
1: Yeah I'm going to give you three different areas. As opposed to individual investments because really the way we put these together are broad themes where we're trying to um capture you know if you will a tailwind in the in the marketplace which we're going to benefit over you know hopefully the next 10 years so there's kind of three areas one would be um medical so like it or not the the boomers frankly i've noticed everyone seems to be aging particularly over the last year we also have be aging quite a bit um <laughs> But medical technology, pharmaceuticals, um, and healthcare in general is an area that uh, in, in the private space that we have made some investments. We've invested in healthcare royalties. Those are basically as you, you fund um, the development of new drugs, and then you get a piece of those drugs when they come online. Um, that's, that's been you know, extremely you know, multiple double-digit returns in that area. Uh, we've had some investments in sterile Medical bottling, actually, in a company in the state, over on the west side of the state. I won't mention it, but it is public knowledge, and that's done very well that, um, last year, particularly. And um, and then I think the other sp- space on the private side is we've made a lot of investments. I mean, for you know, for our size and amongst our peers, I think, I think we're close to you know we're over ten percent in farm and agriculture um, investments, both in. Uh, in the U.S. and also in South America and, and in Australia, and we did those for a couple reasons. Normally, these are investments. They might be green fields, like a, a development of a new farm, or more often than not, we like you know a property that maybe has been you know not a, needs new investment, needs some capital expenditures, and that does a couple things for us. It allows us to um, get a real return, so we get you know six percent, ideally maybe even closer to ten percent annualized cash flow coming back. So it's really great for a pension fund, but beyond that, there's an inflation element to it. And one of, the, one of the things when we put the portfolio together with our last asset allocation about, you know, almost three years ago, we estimated that inflation was going to go up. Now, we didn't see this, <laughs> but we, you know, we knew that there were, uh, there were inflationary pressures um, coming in the system and agriculture and real assets generally provide a, um, a margin of safety in that kind of change in regime and um you know and then also i guess you know on on the agriculture side if you do it right you also get capital appreciation as well so uh, so those are kind of three areas we have tried to put money to work and we've got value i guess one other thing is uh we've invested in the electric electrification of the um auto space the world is going through an energy transition that's going to take a long time just to be clear that's not going to happen in the next couple of years it's going to be a multi-decade migration, really, from traditional energy sources to more sustainable uh, green energy, if you will. Um, we try to participate in that because uh, we think that that's a trend that is, is going to be with us for a while, and we put money to work in that space as well.
0: Yeah, it yeah. sounds like a lot of things have changed. I mean, when you when you describe the global economic landscape, I mean, it does seem like you know we don't have a perfect crystal ball and no one's got it all figured out. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is, um, are things different this time? Do we think that the strategies that have worked for the last you know 30 years or so will then work in the next 30 years, given all the changes?
1: That is the question of the day. In that it, I'd love to say that's a good cr- question, Kristen, but that's actually a really hard question, and I kind of wish you hadn't answered it or <laughs> asked it, but... Um, uh, but seriously, I think one thing that I, I passionately believe is that, you know, a, a modicum of diversification, I think, serves investors well. I think it always has. Um, overly concentrating a portfolio in one asset class, you know, in, in one stock is, is unwise. So I think that's going to continue. I think that if you, if you look at it, you know, the stock market will, you know, may go through a difficult period for sure. We'll continue because companies need money to get started they just they just do so um, so I think what we have seen the, the, the financial system itself will function in a similar fashion than it has but I think the areas that have done well may change and I think so that's why you build a diversified global portfolio I think one of the things that I'm I'm thinking a lot about is when I started this business we had a there was a term uh, it was more home country bias. So countries all around the world would focus more on they'd actually have stipulations they can only have so much, they'd have most of their assets in their country. And then we moved into more of a a global financial system and and people shifted their portfolios accordingly. I see that's one thing where I see a shift. I see globalization uh, retreating. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to trade with each other all around the world. That's going to happen, but it's going to be harder. It's going to be more expensive, particularly as, you know, for the last 70 years, the U.S. essentially put a security umbrella, you know, around the oceans. You know, tra- you know trade was safe and, rel- and cheap and relatively easy. Um, I think you're going to see spheres, um, different spheres, different regions, develop around the globe where countries are kind of securing their supply chains. We'll do the same. So I think picking certain spots as opposed to a broad global basket is going to probably be a way that I think you can add some value going forward.
0: So as your team looks you know, into your crystal ball for both the short term and long term, what are the, some of the key factors that you'll be watching
1: so a few moments ago, I talked a little bit about you know deglobalization, if you will. And so one one of the things that we're looking at is you know there's two terms. It's like onshoring and reshoring, and simply what COVID you know because we can't go we can't do a podcast without talking about COVID for sure. <laughs> but COVID taught us that you're, you know that just in time delivery is great until it doesn't work anymore. And so businesses, governments, and frankly, human beings, we all learn that you got to have a backup. So the whole globe is going through a process of, you know, moving production either to home to create jobs um, and to address some of the, you know, social instability that we've, you know, that we've seen. Um, and also to secure those, those supply lines and those production lines. So it's not just everything's in China. They're looking at other having a couple different areas to put to build production facilities. So that does that does two things. It's like who's going to have a strong supply line, right? Who's going to be able to meet the needs um, of the consumer? And then beyond that, that's inflationary because it takes probably eighteen months to get something up and running. You know, when you when you when you move you move a production facility any place. So if you look, that's going on right now. See. So so, you really can, so I think there's inflationary pressures for the next couple of years really coming a lot from that. But it's also going to create opportunities. I talked to earlier about like which regions are we looking at. Um, you're going to be looking at which companies got that right, which countries got that right. And um, and that's going to kind of give us some insight into where and when we're going to want to deploy capital. And I think it also gives us at least a little insight that inflation is probably going to stay a little bit higher for a while. Um, and... So we'll keep looking for inflation-sensitive assets like real assets is just one example to put more of those into the portfolio.
0: Yeah, I think everyone remembers seeing, at least uh, in the Lansing area, we would see those parking lots just full of cars waiting for chips from, from China. And I was reading an article recently about Henry Ford. You know, that was, that was the, his model. They literally built everything on site to complete control of the supply chain. So it's kind of interesting how we're coming full circle, maybe a little bit back to that.
1: Yeah, and I don't see it. In a few cases, it'll be really critical. If people will do everything maybe in one country. But, but I think it's going to be more regional. They'll have their, part, they'll have their regional partners. Um, I, I think you could see, you know, you know, for us in the Western Hemisphere – you know, we're very integrated with Canada, Mexico, and frankly, the South America. So that's a, that's a natural fit for us. Um, we've already moved a lot of manufacturing um, in, in, into Mexico. So, uh, so we're, yeah, I think the U.S. is frankly in a pretty good position going forward. We've kind of, we actually started this process, frankly, a lot longer than people think. You know, it was, it was started kind of before the pandemic. Um, but it's going to take time. And, um, and the rest of the world's going through this as well. I think the other thing that we're looking at, we're watching closely, is frankly energy. In our society, I mean, we're able to do what we do because of energy, and when energy, if energy goes away, that's a problem. But as we've seen with the, because again, a podcast can't, you know, you got to talk about COVID, but you also got to talk about Russia-Ukraine. Um, but that's, but but you know, that's putting pressure on 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 energy costs, and um, so you're going to see traditional energy, right? Fossil fuels are gonna be a little in vogue for a little bit longer than people had thought. And making sure that they can get, you know, LNG, liquefied natural gas um, shipped to the right do- you know, destinations gonna be is gonna be critical. And at the same time, there's gonna be opportunities in green energy. Um, because as costs go up, right, for you know, if you're hundred dollars plus a barrel where it's what, six, seven dollars to fill up, you know, a gallon to fill up your car. Suddenly, some alternatives start to look very attractive. So we'll be watching closely for opportunities in, in, in both, frankly, the traditional energy space and also new energy.
0: So, for as an institutional investor, when you're doing long-term investing, you know, but yet responding on the daily to things changing, um, I, I'm imagining that our governance structure um, and our governance policies are pretty important to help protect, um, you know, both our returns as well as liquidity. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how our governance structure helps to to help ha- um, helps us to prepare? For geopolitical events
1: yeah I, I mean first off we've got you know we have a long-term asset allocation we've got a board we've got an investment committee we have checks and balances we have a process you know to go through so we have to rebalance the portfolio so we can't you know investors human beings generally um, have we are built uh, behavioral science or behavioral finance will tell us that we're all basically wired to be bad investors you know that fight-or-flight instinct is in us today so we're wired to buy high and uh, sell low um, so when you have when you have a structure you know that says you are you know which demands that you rebalance and during certain time frames, that gives you discipline that allows you to act when others when fear ramps up and people are unable to to act so 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 we've got that most institutional investors have that but we also have the flexibility the board trusts us we, you know we have an investment team we're there to make adjustments in the shorter term, if need be, and a lot of times that it might be there, may be a big sell-off, huge sell-off. Well, we can rebalance the portfolio quicker at that time. Uh, I think beyond that, we also look towards um, liquidity issues. You know, you you'd ask earlier about you know how much in alternatives. Well, we're, we're a mature plan. We we which is fine. We're designed to make pension payments to to our participants. That also you know makes us pay attention to that. We got to make sure that we've got adequate liquidity regardless of the market environment so that we can pay those checks and rebalance the portfolio and we have we have internal you know procedures which you know monitor that and and make sure that we're in a good position to carry out you know our objectives.
0: Yeah, I like the idea that that imposes the discipline.
1: It, it yeah. it's the, it's the key thing. It's to, you know if you have a process and you have discipline you'll be successful. It's a lot of times you know you got it's got to be flexible mm-hmm. because you know things do do change. And I think that's where judgment and frankly, having a, you know, a stable long tenure team, which uh, we do here, frankly, an experienced board um, that has, you know, multi-decade record of some of the best governance in the country, you know, and then some of the board members are are also investment experts. So, you know, there's a lot of experience on both the board, uh, the various committees, the board and with my team. So this is not the first time we've been through a market, you know shock and it won't be the last and I guess the last thing i would say this is a belief you know that i do have if you if you go back 100 plus years markets tend to go up now they don't always go up as quickly there is growth built into the system so now are we going to go through a a patch of slower growth possibly you know but you know the trajectory tends to be to be upward and also we have we tend to have enough diversification in the portfolio We also tend to look out a little bit in the future. We'll we'll make adjustments in order to to meet the needs of of the plan.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear a little bit of optimism in in an otherwise challenging time. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with today?
1: Um, These type of moments are a really good time as a professional to look at the portfolio because it's going to be pretty obvious what's what's working, you know. what are areas where you want to make some changes? And then frankly, there's going to be opportunities. And so we're doing, we're going about that work right now. It's intense, but I'm confident that with the team I have and the support of the board that, you know, we're going to, we're going to be successful. I think other things coming, coming in the future. So at our annual conference, um, we're going to have Louis Gaff. He's, um, an economist with Gaff We've known Louis for a, a couple decades now, he and his team. They have research professionals all around the world and, um, and he's going to speak at the annual conference, and I think I think our membership is going to find it very interesting. I'm really looking forward to to bringing him to the annual, yeah. annual conference.
0: Yeah, and I'll look forward to that. And that's September 25th and 26th in uh, Traverse City. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to share with our listeners that we, we can find more resources on the market volatility we discussed at Uh There's a market volatility banner right there on the homepage. And there you can find some things like a cool chart that shows stock market highs and lows over time. Um, as you mentioned, they t- tend to go up, but it highlights where the market has taken downward plunges in response to events throughout history and what has happened um, following each low point. And again, spoiler alert, it has climbed back to record highs each time. Um, we also have on there a periodic table of investments, making me feel like I'm back in, in, in chemistry class, showing highest and lowest performing classes of stocks uh, over the past 20 years. Um, I think it really drives home the value of diversifying the portfolio because it's very hard to predict exactly where the biggest gains and losses are apt to fall from year to year. And then finally, there are also some, some great videos, articles, and explanations that help us understand some investment concepts and apply some strategies. Um, you know, to meet both MERS goals um, and individual goals while, you know, planning for the future. So thanks so
1: much, Deb. Thanks, Kristen.
0: Talk to you next quarter. Can't wait. Look for another episode of Inside MERS Investments next quarter for continued great discussion on MERS investment performance and strategy. This podcast is intended as general information only and should not be regarded as investment advice.